0: Mr. Byers is one of the few men who won a substantial sum of money on a quiz show and gave it to raise the ship. Now, without anything further, without any further statements, I'll let him tell the story in his own way. Thank you so much, President Alexander. The Civil War is an interesting Phase of history to me and all you other folks that we wouldn't be here tonight. In fact, it's my practically, as well as a number of you people, who I know is our all-consuming interest. The Civil War was a transitional period. And in the sinking of the Cairo, we have two great mechanical revolutions colliding. When the Civil War broke out, it found Mr. Davis's Confederacy confronted with a number of vexing problems and none more complicated than to how to cope with northern sea power. True, the northern navy at the outbreak of the Civil War was only 90 odd vessels, 40 of these in the mothball fleet, borrowing a modern term. But the South had none, very few boat yards in the South. Only a few naval officers, no seafaring population. So the South would have to create a navy if it was to cope with the North on the high seas and on the rivers that penetrated the southern heartlands. Well, to cope with northern sea power, the South adopted the traditional methods of small naval powers, ones that we've been familiar with in our own times in World War II. This was the building of a super battleship. The Confederates, as we know, much like the Germans with their Bismarck and the Tirpitz, the Japanese with their Mushashi and the Yamamoto, built the Virginia. The Virginia came out on the eighth day of March in a blaze of glory, but was nullified the next day by the Monitor. They built the Arkansas. She failed due to mechanical failures out in the Mississippi River. They failed with the Tennessee. The super battleship idea thus failed for the same reason it did for the Germans and the Japanese. The superior numbers, superior uh, facilities will always nullify a super warship. They tried the super, they tried secret weapons like the Germans with their V1s and their V2s. The Confederate secret weapon was, if you were a harassed Yankee naval officer, an infernal machine, or as the Confederates would call it, a torpedo, or as we would call it today, a mine. Mr. Davis, when he selected his first cabinet in Montgomery, had seven portfolios to fill, and he did it geographically, awarding each cabinet office to a man from a different state. More or less, he he chose Stephen Mallory for Secretary of the Navy, first because he needed a man from Florida in his cabinet, and also that Mallory had been on the Naval Affairs Committee in the US Senate, so he'd had some experience. Well, Mallory was quite able, and after arriving in Richmond, after they transferred the government, he got together and started thinking. One of his first appointments was Matthew Fontaine Mallory, the noted oceanographer and man of science. They got together, and Mallory told Mallory that he thought a good idea would be torpedoes. Well, Mallory got the, some of the bureaucrats, and they headed down for the James River with Maori one day, and Maori got himself uh, 20 pounds of powder, sealed it up in a cask, attached a friction primer to it, and submerged it under a barge. And standing ashore near rockets, he pulled a lanyard. The lanyard pulled the friction primer, and boom, they blew up the barge. The Secretary of Navy liked what he saw, and immediately named Maori the head of a bureau of harbor and river defenses with orders to develop an effective torpedo. The Confederates wasted no time in conducting their first offensive operation with a torpedo, but it was a very crude instrument, as we know. They took a couple of kegs of iron, a couple of kegs of iron filled them with black powder, then they inserted these kegs of iron and casks to give them buoyancy. Into each cask there was a Fuse placed that ran up through out of the bung up through a pipe. These casts were t- attached together by rope. and under the cover of darkness. Some Confederate sailors rowed out into the Potomac River above Aquia Creek, lit the fuses and cast these casts loose and let them drift down river. Down below was the Union, the Union Potomac flotilla. They were tied up for the night, and as you know, vessels when they tie up in the river tie up bows upstream. The plan being to let these casts float downriver with the fuses sputtering, throwing off sparks, they would drift down, foul anchor chains, and fall in against the sides or the beams of the Yankee warships. But the Yankees were keeping a close watch that night, saw these sparks drifting down the river, put out small boats, snuffed them out. And thus, the Confederate first attempt to use infernal machines failed. Other experiments were carried out at Charleston, South Carolina, by Stephen Elliott who was only a captain at this time, but you know later was a brigadier general of crater fame. He and Hunter Davidson conducted experiments near Fort Pulaski with both electrically and mechanically detonated devices, but no successful attack on Union vessels. Down at New Orleans, Beverly Kennan conducted experiments on Lake Pontchartrain with electrically detonated devices. But before he could put them into operation, Farragut sailed up the Mississippi River, blasted his way by Fort St. Philip and Jackson, captured New Orleans, and sent Beverly Kennan scurrying up the Mississippi to Vicksburg, where he set up another establishment, along with Zevatiah McDaniel and Francis Ewing. And they began developing and working on infernal machines because they knew sooner or later the Yazoo would become important. Well, what did they come up with? They got a number and went to the Vicksburg march- merchants, got themselves a number of five gallon glass demijohns, filled them full of black powder. Then they went to the artillerists and borrowed a number of friction primers. And they went out to the Yazoo River with these five gallon glass demijohns, the, inserted the friction primers, waterproofed the tube of the, uh, uh, the demijohn. And they, to get, of course, filled with black powder, if they took it out in the Yazoo River, the demijohn would sink. So they attached a block of wood to it to give it buoyancy. Then they sunk the torpedo, dropped the torpedo down in the river and anchored it to the bottom of the yazoo with a grapnel. Leading from the mouth of the tube, attached to the friction primer was a copper wire, leading to torpedo pits ashore, blind Blake's levee. Thus the instrument had been developed. The wheel of fortune would now spin to decide which would be the first warship to be sunk by a torpedo. The vessel that was to keep the fateful rendezvous with the torpedo was famous in itself. It was one of the first seven ironclads built in the Western Hemisphere. Now when the Civil War broke out, there was living in St. Louis, a noted engineer and salvage man, James Buchanan Eads. In 1856, at the age of 37 years old, Eads had retired a millionaire. It was easier to be a millionaire then, there was no income tax. So with the outbreak of the Civil War, Eads, like many men of the Northwest, was concerned about the Mississippi River. To Eads, this was all-important, both to the lifeblood of the states of the old Northwest and to the defeat of the Confederacy. Uh, This typical thought is best emphasized in the words of General John Logan of Illinois, of Murfreesboro. As we know, Logan had been a congressman representing the Egypt district in the United States House of Representatives. He was known as a dope since he was a Northern Democrat who generally voted with the Southerners on uh, sectional measures. So the Southerners figured that he might be with them. Well, when, the, when it came time, the Southern states would withdraw and their legislation, legislators would leave the United States House. They would make a speech. Finally, Logan got up and he warned his friends from the South, the people from the old Northwest will hew their way to the Gulf with bayonets. Eads had the same feeling. And three days after Fort Sumter was fired upon, he drafted a letter for his friend, Edward Bates, the Attorney General of the United States. He told Mr. Bates that he believed the Mississippi was all important. He would establish a base at Cairo, Illinois, where the Mississippi and the Ohio came together, and he recommended that the Union take a number of the salvage boats. He'd retired, but he still held interest in his salvage firm. And they would take the submarine number 7, this giant two-hole monster that he had built, line it with, reinforce the sides of it with cotton bales, mount heavy guns on it, and take a number of the other salvage boats. And they would start from Cairo, Illinois, with these guns mounted on the bows of these vessels, and they would fight their way down to New Orleans breaking the South in two, much like was to happen in 1863. Well, Bates liked what he read, and on the 17th day of April, he telegraphed Eads, come to Washington and tell the cabinet about it. Eads caught the next train to Washington. He trained in Washington and attended a cabinet meeting in which he read his proposal to the assembled members. Well, the United States Secretary of Navy was Gideon Wells, the Connecticut newspaper man known as Father Neptune. And Wells liked what he heard and recommended that the Navy carry it out. But there was another member of the cabinet, Simon Cameron, Secretary of War. And Cameron got to thinking a while and he said, inland waterways, that ought to be Army responsibility. So he said, "Uh, Mr. Wells, you're trespassing. This is Army territory. And he sent Eades back to St. Louis. Cameron then called in Lieutenant General Winfield Scott and told him to make a study. Well, Scott, the brilliant lieutenant general of the United States Army, Though he's somewhat in infirmities of old age, is somewhat caught up with Scott, but Scott called in the chief engineer, Colonel Totten, and told him to make a study. So like the good man he was, Totten began making inventory of all the boats available, how many barges were on the Ohio River, how they could stockpile coal and supplies in Cairo and use Cairo as their base of operations. He then called in Navy help. He called for Captain Lenthall. Chief Naval Constructor, we would call him a naval architect, and he asked him to de- design a gunboat. So Lenthall sat down on his dr- with his draftsman, and they came off with a gunboat, approximately 150 feet long, 35 feet wide, flat bottom. Well, they then showed this plan to Pook. Pook was Lenthall's assistant, and Pook had read what these developments that were taking place in Europe the Crimean War, where the British and French had ironclads. And he added iron plate and slightly enlarged the vessel that Lenthal had put on the boards. So what we have on the design of these vessels, we have Eads coming up with the idea of an inland fleet, Lenthal coming with the basic design, then Puk expanding on it and adding iron. Well, they have the design. The next thing to do is to get the money. So they go to Congress in the second week of July, 1861, and get an appropriation to build from 6 to 16 ironclad gunboats for service on western waters. Now, the the money is available. The authority to build the gunboats, they have a plan. But who's going to build them? Well, the government does business by asking for contracts. The state government, the city government, the federal government, they have to ask for contracts to get bidders. The man who will be in charge of asking for bids will be Montgomery Meigs, quartermaster general of the United States. And on the 21st day of July, appearing in the various newspapers of Principal, Ohio, and Mississippi River towns was this advertisement. The government was inviting bids to build from six to 16 ironclad gunboats. The gunboats would be li- delivered at Cairo, Illinois, but the bids, only the only people invited to bid would be boat builders. Now Eads was a promoter and a salvage man. He had never built a boat, but Eads saw this proposal. He headed back for his hotel, his home in St. Louis and formulated his proposal. He said, I will build from 6 to 16 gunboats. I will charge the government $89,600 apiece. I will deliver these boats in 64 days at Cairo, Illinois. And mailed his bid off to Washington. But he had friends. As I said, he already had Bates for a friend because, remember, the bids are to be filed by a boat builder so he had attorney general bates write a letter to montgomery miggs saying what a good man mr eads was how uh, how what a promoter he was montgomery blair wrote a letter couched in the same terms to mr miggs as did his brother frank the republican boss of Missouri. Well, along came the seventh day of August and Montgomery Meigs and his staff sat down, opened the bids. Eads had had enough foresight to be in Washington the day the bids would be opened. There were seven bidders. In justice to Mr. Eads, his was the most favorable proposal. But again, as I say, he was supposed to be a boat builder. Also, there was a provision that they were not to subcontract. So Eads wouldn't have a boatyard at all. He would have to arrange, when he signed the the contract to build seven ironclads, he would have to arrange for boat yards, he'd have to arrange to get the engines built, and everything. But he was a very clever man. He arranged with one of his, some of his St. Louis friends to lease the uh, Corondelet Marine Railway Yards at Carondelet, suburb now a suburb of St. Louis. It's now been incorporated into the St. Louis. He Hamilton and Company of Mound City had been one of the unsuccessful bidders. So what did he do? He subcontracted three of the vessels to Hamilton and Company. Harnopy and Company of Pittsburgh had bid. To them went the subcontract for building the engines for the boats. In fact, all the bidders, the unsuccessful bidders except one, were taken care of by subcontracts. The only one he neglected to take care of was one at Madison, Indiana. And it's really hilarious the letter the Madison, Indiana man wrote. He said, he wrote to his senator, Senator Bright. And he said, Mr. E.D.D.E.S. has been awarded this bid. And he said he is not a boat builder. He has never built a boat. In fact, in the last 10 years, only 10 boats have been built at St. Louis. He says if Mr. E.D.D.E.S. is going to build these boats, they'll have to be used in the next war because they'll never get finished. With Eads' co- contract already in his hands, Mr. the, the New Albany, the Madison, Indiana boat builders' letter was filed away, and I doubt if anyone had looked at it particularly till I found it in the National Archives last summer. Well, Eads was now ready. Got back to St. Louis and immediately went to hiring. Within three weeks, he had 800 men working in Carondelet, 300 men working in Mound City, 15. Fifteen million broad feet of timber were contracted for. Gaylord son and company of Cincinnati would furnish the iron plate, two and a half inches thick, and work began. To give you an idea of the wage scales paid in those days on the boats, a master machinist or a master carpenter was paid two dollars for a 10-hour day. He received 25 cents an hour overtime, and they worked a 20-hour day. The superintendent of the boat yard, the one at Mound City was building three, the one at Carondelet was building four, was paid $5 a day. The foreman in charge of each hull would be paid $3 a day. Well, they went to work. According to the contract stipulations, every 20 days, a government official would come to the yards and make an estimate of the amount of work done during the previous 20 days, and Eads would immediately be paid three three quarters of the amount of work that had been done. This was to uh, get them into a big legal snarl, because when Eads started in on the 27th day of August, the government inspector showed up, estimated the amount of work done on the boat. According to the contract, Eads was to be paid three-quarters of that amount immediately. 20, Thirty days elapsed and no money. The government was a little slow on paying. So Eads began writing letters and begging to be paid. He even had to threaten to suspend work to finally get his money. He had to go to the banks, and this course slowed down work. Well, 64 days plus the 7th of August is the 10th day of October. That's when these seven boats are supposed to be at Cairo, Illinois ready to fight. Long came the 10th day of October, no boats were launched. They did get one hull launched on the 12th day of October, but you know on boat building, there's a long time between when the boat drops into the water and she is commissioned. In fact, there was to be 97 more days were to lapse before the boats were to be commissioned. So you can see Mr. Eads is in serious financial troubles on a strict interpretation of the government contract because he's beginning to forfeit $200 a day per boat on each one of these seven, so he's forfeiting $1,400 a day on his contract. Well, finally, as I said, on the 15th day of January, the seven vessels were put into commission. We'll go into uh, one brief digression here. After the boats, uh, it said the army was in charge of building the boats, and they would be the army's flotilla. But the army, locked officers to man them. They could go and detail a colonel off a regiment and put him aboard a gunboat. And even if he had uh, experience as a steamboat Captain, there's still certain techniques you have to have to command a war vessel. You have to have long training, you have to have signal, uh, you have to have some knowledge of signals, you have to have knowledge of batteries on a vessel. And so they had to go to Gideon Wells and ask Gideon Wells to send him some officers. So he detailed them a number of officers to come out and take charge of these vessels. Then the Navy dug up 600 enlisted men. They had been stationed in one of the forts outside of Washington first manassas out at Fort Ellsworth. And finally, along in November, they realized they weren't doing anything out here, and they sent them to Cairo. But it would take 180 men to man each of these vessels. So you can see this 600 would just about man three of the vessels. So then they began to, they would have to go to the Army for the rest of them, because they sent recruiters out here to the Great Lakes cities, and there was too much competition for the, for the Naval officers who were out trying to drum up recruits. Uh, the Army had it all tied up in this area. So, General Halleck was now in charge, and they had a long a foot, and Halleck were exchanging letters, trying to get crews. There were letters going to McClellan, letters bouncing to Cameron to wells and Finally, they said, well, the army 'll have to furnish them, but as you know, these regiments, as they were organized, they usually did, uh, like Governor Yates, would commission a colonel, and a colonel would line up his captains, and they would go recruit a regiment. Now, if they put a whole regiment aboard uh, these gunboats. The officers wanted to go, too, because if they went aboard, if they they didn't go aboard, they would lose their commands. And the naval officers didn't want any of these army officers aboard the vessels. They said, we don't have any quarters for them. Uh, Keep them off the boats. So finally, what they had to do, they had to go and take the enlisted men without the officers. In fact, the way they got the volunteers is like you always do. You, you, and you go aboard the gunboats. Meanwhile, Eads as soon as the vessels were commissioned, headed off to Washington to collect the rest of his money. And the government said, boy, uh, you owe us money. Says, uh, 97 days times $1,400 a day. But he said, you caused me to be late. You were supposed to pay me promptly these estimates. Well, they both went to their lawyers. Meanwhile, the war moved on. As we all know, on the second day of February, Flag Officer Foote cast off with three of these ironclads, the Essex, which is another ironclad, two timberclads, headed up the Ohio River and up the Tennessee River. On the fourth day of February, the gunboats tied up seven miles below Fort Henry, and General McLaren's men went ashore. On the fifth, plans were made by Grant and Foote to attack Fort Henry. Grant said, We will attack at 10, we will move out at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, Foote looked at him and said, We better, you better move much earlier than 10 if we're to cast off at 10, because he said, I'll capture those, I'll capture Fort Henry before you get into position, because it had been raining very heavily. And Foote realized the army would bog down. But Grant said, No, we'll, it'll be a joint attack. We'll attack together, because he didn't figure the gunboats would amount to too much. Well, as we all know what happened, (laughs) Foote cast off moved into position. His gunboats opened fire on Fort Henry. Fifty-five minutes later, the Confederate flag came down. Three hours later, General Grant and General McClernand arrived with their troops to find the gunboats in possession of the fort. The gunboats had been vindicated. It's a strange situation, though, at Fort Henry, which we'll never have again. The gunboats, when they moved against Fort Henry, are, are officers by United States Navy personnel. They're manned primarily by personnel from the United States Army. And since Mr. Eads had only been paid part of the money due him, undoubtedly the the, the, uh, title still uh, still rested in Mr. Eads. So we have gunboats manned by the Army, officered by the Navy, owned by a private individual. Well, of course, with the fall of Fort Henry, they were vindicated. And a telegram went off to Washington to announce the victory. On the 15th day of February, the Comptroller of the United States Treasury looked at the argument. And he said, I told uh, Megs, he said, uh, we've got Eads because he, he failed to fulfill his contract to deliver the boats, but we also failed to make payment. He says, we each have a suit against each other. Let's drop the whole subject. Perhaps it was well that he made the decision then because by about this time, in came a telegram saying the gunboats hadn't done so well at Fort Henry on the 13th. Well, Eads was paid. Well, let's trace tre- briefly the Carol. She was the hard-luck boat of the seven. She missed dates with glory. She missed being at the right spot at the right time, except on the 12th day of December 1862. When the vessels moved against Fort Henry, they were still drafting crews, so she didn't get to go against Fort Henry because she wasn't manned yet. But by the seventh day, the day after Fort Henry fell, she had a crew aboard. But on that day, her engines broke down and her crew was transferred to the Louisville. And the Louisville was able to participate in the the operations against Fort Donaldson. Finally, the engines on the carol were repaired. She received a new crew and headed up the river. She arrived at Fort Donaldson on the 19th and as you all know, till someone shot back at you, you're always a little eager to get into battle. And as you yet, no, the other gunboats had all been in battle, the Cairo had not. So the, uh, the Cairo's crew was a little disappointed when they showed up at Fort Henry. Fort Henry had fallen. And on the 19th, Flag Officer Foote took the Cairo and the Conestoga, and they went up the river and captured Clarksville, Tennessee. But again, no opposition. On the 24th day of, excuse me, on the 25th day of February, as we know, General Nelson's division moved up the Tennessee in transports with the Carroll leading them, and Nashville surrendered. Nashville was nice capturing, but still no opposition. Carroll remained at Nashville throughout the latter part of February and until the 25th day of March. Meanwhile, the gunboats. All her sisters had moved down the Mississippi River and were operating against island number 10. Cairo on the 25th day of March left the Cumberland River and proceeded up the Tennessee River to operate with the t- timberclads, Lexington and Conestoga. On the first day of April, Cairo made a run up the river with the two timberclads and with some troops from General Sherman's tr- uh, division, some 20 miles to Eastport, where there were supposed to be some Confederates. Well, the gunboats opened fire, uh, bombarded the Confederate positions. The troops went ashore, found the Confederates had pulled out a couple of days before. They then returned to Pittsburgh landing. And on the third day of April, the water in the Tennessee was falling rapidly. And the, and the ironclad drew six feet, and they feared that she would soon be grounded and isolated in the Tennessee, so she headed downriver to Cairo, Illinois. And we all know what happened on the sixth day of April. Three days later, General Johnston launched his slashing attack on General Grant's army. For a while, the Confederates swept all before them. The Yankees fell back, for they were reinforced by General Nelson's division, and supported by the fire of the two timberclads, the timberclads were cited in general orders for their support of Grant's troops. Once again, Cairo had missed being at the right place. Well, Cairo joined foot squadron on the t- Mississippi River on the twelfth day of April, six days after Island Number Ten had fallen. Once again. She had missed being at the right place at the right time. Cairo operated against Fort Pillow, and in our good friend Pete Long's favorite battle at Plum Point, she got off a couple of rounds, but did very little. She and the St. Louis didn't get into action. They were a little late casting off, but they did fire a few long range shots at the Confederates, but they could hardly be said to be engaged. During the following months, during the following days, she helped cover the gun, the mortars as they bombarded Fort Pillow, but this was at a long distance, little chance for glory. Finally, the Confederates pulled out of Fort Pillow. The Cairo, along with the rest of the squadron, which was now commanded by Davis, occupied Fort Pillow on the 5th, headed down the river. And on the sixth day of June at Memphis, the Cairo did get in a little action. One of her guns won the distinction of fire the first shot from the Union side in the Battle of Memphis, but at the Battle of Memphis, Ellis ram stole the thunder, leaping on ahead and uh, breaking the back of the Confederates before the ironclads could get into action. So once again, the Cairo had been on, been in action, but had failed to distinguish herself. June, July, and August found the Cairo on patrol duty off Fort Pillow few expeditions were made against Confederate partisans or guerrillas, depending on your sympathies, but little excitement. In September, after the signing of the Hill-Dix Cartel Agreement, the Cairo escorted transports down the river to Vicksburg loaded with Confederate prisoners, escorted the Exchange Union prisoners back river to Hella and Memphis. As you know, in the summer of 1862, the Union Navy, under Farragut and Davis, attempted to reduce Vicksburg, but failed, and the navies recoiled from Vicksburg. Of course, as I said, while these stirring days were taking place, Carroll was on patrol duty up at Fort Pillow, far from the scene of action. In the fall of 62, Grant was ready for his first smash against Vicksburg. Grant was going to lead his column southward down what is today the I.C., but what was then the Illinois Central Railroad through Oxford, Grenada, Jackson. General McLaren was going to command a column descending the Mississippi River. Of course, we're going to know that General Sherman kidnaps McLaren's army, but at this stage, McLaren was supposed to lead this thrust. So preparatory to sending McLaren's command down the Mississippi River. The Navy would go down, clear out the mouth of the Yazoo, and if possible, send light draft gunboats up the Mississippi, excuse me, up the Yazoo, and Yalabusha Rivers to Grenada. And if they could reach Grenada, they could cut the railroad behind General Pemberton's army, which was contesting Grant in North Mississippi. So on the 25th day of November, this advanced squadron under Captain Henry Walk, cast off from Helena, Arkansas, headed down the Mississippi. Arrived off the mouth of the Yazoo on the 29th day of November. The next day, two light drafts, Signal and Marmara. These were simply river boats the Navy had purchased. They'd added a few light armor, a little light armor on the bow and the pilot house. They were designed for maneuver, for engagements against Confederate troops with field artillery, but they were not designed for any heavy work against Confederate fortifications the signal started up the Yazoo and as they did they made soundings. There wasn't enough water over the bar to float the big ironclads. They ran up the river about 23 miles to within sight of the Confederate fortifications at Drumgools and Snyder's Bluff. After studying the fortifications the officers took their boats returned to the mouth of the Yazoo and reported what they had seen to walk. Well on the 11th day of December Walk again, sent the two tin-clads up the river. They crossed the bar, it had been raining. There was now enough water in the yazoo to float the ironclads. They proceeded up the river about 20 miles. And as they were running along up the yazoo, single, fu- single file, Mamara leading, one of the sailors on the Mamara saw an object floating in the river along nearby. He took his musket, drew a bead on it, pulled the trigger, and boom! And an infernal machine. The two captains of the light drafts ordered the vessels to turn around, and they began turning around. There was another explosion alongside signal. A geyser of water leaped up, cascaded downward, drenching the deck. They were in among a torpedo field. The vessels then fled down the river, crossed the bar at the mouth of the Yazoo, and the senior officer, Lieutenant Getty, headed aboard the Carondelet to report to Walken. He says, there are infernal machines up the Yazoo. But he says, but he said, I think I can take them up. I will take the light drafts. You give me a couple of ironclads to cover me, and we'll go up the yazoo, put out small boats. And he says they're being detonated by wires going to the bank ashore. And we can put these small boats out, and they can row up along the bank, and, they can, and we can snip these wires and deactivate the torpedoes walk was suffering from a recurrence of malaria picked up during the summer and he was and he was feeling under the weather and he says i don't feel well i'll send my second in command lieutenant commander thomas o selfridge now selfridge is an inter- interesting individual the navy as you know didn't establish annapolis to in the 18 late 1840s prior to that the naval officers had come up through the midshipman system. And most of the officers walk was, was in his 60s. Selfridge had graduated from, in the second class, to graduate from Annapolis. He graduated number two. He was also a Navy brat, his papa being a captain in the United States Navy. So he was not too popular with these old salts. He was what we call one of the angry young men in our times. During the Civil War, he was serving as gunnery officer on the Cumberland, one of the Virginia's victims. On her, during her engagement with Cumberland, Selfridge had had a narrow escape. He was down below deck when the vessel started to go down. And he started up through a hatch, and a very rotund drummer boy was going up ahead of him with a drum on, and he got stuck in the hatch. And Selfridge had to go back into his cabin and go out through one of the portholes on the side. And as he did, he had a narrow escape as his boot caught in the port. He, succeeded in kicking it off, reaching the surface. His next command was the Alligator. Now, the Yankees had an experimental submarine, too. They named it the Alligator. Selfridge was in charge of it, and a strange thing about the crew of the Alligator, Selfridge was an officer and a gentleman. The other 15 crew members listed New York City as their home, listed no occupation. One wonders if they were perhaps derelicts from the city's swept up from the city streets of New York. Well, the alligators, after several experiments, the Yankees decided it was too hazardous. They uh, didn't want to run the risks that was happening to the Confederates. Of course, they didn't know the experiments the Confederates were carrying on. And Selfridge, with his derelicts, headed out west where he was assigned the Cairo. Well, look, on the 11th day, of December called and He said, you'll take this expedition up the Yazoo in the morning. You'll let the light drafts take the lead. You'll go single file, and you will keep the two ironclads, Pittsburgh and Cairo, back. Under no condition will you take your ironclads into deep water. The next morning was a mizzling morning. It, a, uh, it voted evil, and the gunboats cast off, entered the mouth of the Yazoo. The light draft, Marmar leading, signal second, the Ram, Queen of the West, third, Pittsburgh, excuse me, Cairo, fourth, Pittsburgh, fifth. They started up the Yazoo. 12 miles up the Yazoo, they spied a small boat. The Marmara hailed it. They brought the men aboard the Marmara for questioning. The men were Jonathan Williams, Benson Blake's overseer, and a Negro slave as to the location of the torpedoes. After failing to get any information from these gentlemen, they took them and threw them in irons and set them below deck, so much for the rights of civilians. Mm -hmm. An expedition proceeded on up the river. Half a mile further, there was a sharp bend in the Yazoo. The Moara started around the bend. There was a -a 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 crackle of small arms fire. Selfridge ordered full speed ahead for getting his order. Cairo pulled out of its position fourth in line, drew alongside Mamar as Selfridge seized his bullhorn and hailed Getty and said, What's the matter? Getty said, This is where the torpedoes are. Selfridge said, Well, lower your small boats and start taking them up. Evidently Getty did not run a very tight vessel. There was some confusion in getting the small boat away. Selfridge was not known for his uh, his even temper. He began to get somewhat agitated and began uh, using rather strong language on Getty. Finally, they got the small boat lowered and it started pulling for shore. Soon, Lieutenant Ensign Fentress, who was in charge of the small boat, reached down, made a swipe with his saber, and up popped a five-gallon glass demijohn. Well, they wanted to see what was in these. They wanted to see what made them tick, so they took up the demijohn and started back to the Mamara. Of course, the vessels were holding water, and when vessels hold water, they begin drifting a little bit, and the Cairo's stern had started drifting in toward the bank. Selfridge then hailed Getty and told him to get a little further upstream with the Mamara. Getty didn't funct- uh, didn't move quite rapidly enough for Selfridge, and Selfridge hailed his pilots and said, full speed ahead. The Cairo's wheel made a half a dozen turns, and the Cairo took- moved out in front of the Mamara. As she did, <coughs> There was an explosion. The vessel shook from stem to stern. This time, the torpedo had not gone off alongside. The anchor was thrown about three feet in the air. Water began gushing in. Moments later, there was another explosion. The vessel quivered as more water began pouring in, with, a, as what a diarist uh, uh, cabin boy Yost would say with the force of Niagara. Within a few minutes, the men on the gun deck were up to their knees in the water. It was very apparent to Selfridge that his proud vessel was doomed, so he ordered it run aground, bows on, on the east bank of the river. The vessel was driven aground. Teams of brawny sailors leaped the shore to secure hawsers to trees, but as the vessel filled up with water, the hawsers began to taut, then parted, and the vessel slipped off into 36 feet of water. Within 11 minutes, the only part of Cairo visible above the swirling surface of the Yazoo were chimneys and jackstaffs. Fortunately, all the crew was rescued. The other boats came alongside, pulled down the jackstaffs and chimneys to hide the grave, and they returned to the mouth of the yazoo, and Selfridge had the task of boarding the Corundalat and telling what, what had happened, reporting the loss of his ironclad. This was the first a vessel had ever been sunk by a torpedo in the history of war. Before the Civil War was to be over, 37 more Union vessels were to be sunk or badly damaged by torpedoes. And we know in our own day what the torpedo and the mine have come to, what feared weapons of destruction they have come to be. As I said, Selfridge wasn't very popular with his brother officers. One of them, Acting Master Brown, wrote of the event. He said, Lieutenant Commander Selfridge went up the Yazoo today. Two torpedoes and remove them by placing his vessel over them. <laughs> well, the Yankees, after the capture of Vicksburg in the fall, of, in the summer of 1863, sent out a salvage team to try and bring up the Cairo and other vessels sunk. <laughs> since they were good Yankees, since, uh, the salvage team was in charge of Lieutenant Commander Elias Owen. And Elias Owen had learned that there were a lot of, since we're up north, a lot of Confederate bushwhackers active in the area. I'm sure the Confederates would have called them part. And he decided that since there were a lot of Confederate bushwhackers around, it wasn't quite safe for a lieutenant commander. So he had an ensign on his staff, uh, Phineas Starr. Evidently, was, they were a little more expendable than lieutenant commanders. And he sent Starr up the river, and Starr found the Cairo underwater. Uh, no part of it had been seen since the previous year. It was near the right bank of the river when facing upstream, and a mile and a half below Benson Blake's lower plantation. There, the Cairo was to remain as the years in the river rolled by, and its location became lost. Fortunately, Starr made this report because this is what we use as our basis in finding the craft and rediscovering the craft in 1956. What we did was we studied the old records, made a plot of the probable location of the Cairo, And on the 12th day of November 1956, myself and two other fellows went up the Yazoo River in a small wooden boat and began drifting down the river, about 30 feet off the right bank of the river, when facing upstream, which would be the east bank of the river, and drifted downstream with a military compass. And on the 12th day of November 1956, two other fellows went up the Yazoo River in a small wooden boat and began drifting down the river about 30 feet off the right bank of the river when facing upstream, which would be the east bank of the river, and drifted downstream with a military compass. About a quarter of a mile above the optimum site, we got a small deflection. But over the optimum site, the compass did 180-degree flip flop We went back and forth, getting the same deflection each time approximately. We then went to Vicksburg and got a probing rod, came back, probed down, and we could hit iron down below. In the following weeks, we worked out a system of control probes and traverses and plotted out an object 175 feet long, 51 and a half foot wide down there. But we had difficulty arousing any enthusiasm in Vicksburg or any place at that time, however, because they said, maybe you do have the Cairo down there, but it's just a pile of rotten junk, because nothing can exist down in the river for that long and have any form. But in 1959, Ken Parks, a friend of mine, and Gil Twist from uh, Jackson came to our aid. He says, I, I'm a skin diver. And he says, I'll go down and see what we have down there. So he and Skeeter Hart said they would help And we went back to the site in 1959. And strange to say, though we blazed trees, we were just lucky, in a way, to find it in in 56. Because the whole vessel, except for the pilot house, is buried in the mud of the Yazoo. So you're really shooting. There's no visibility in the Yazoo. It's as muddy as any river on the continent. So you're really shooting for an object that is approximately uh, 15 feet in diameter because even though we had, we had plotted the object, when we went up there in 59, it took us longer to find it in 59 with certain knowns than it did in 56. The bank had sloughed some to change our positions, but we found the vessel and the skin divers went down and all they could feel was the pilot house. It fell in good shape. So we went back and tried to get some enthusiasm up. And finally, we were able to prevail on the Civil War Centennial Commission to contact Anderson and Tully Lumber Company. Will you turn the lights off now and we'll tell the rest of the story with slides. this picture was taken either in February or April 1862 at Cairo, Illinois. The Cairo is 175 feet long, 51 and a half feet wide at the knuckle, the widest point. It displaced 512 tons, it was armed with 13 guns, manned by a crew of 180 officers and men. It and its sister boats are the first seven ironclads built in the Western Hemisphere. These vessels were in action before Monitor or Virginia were even commissioned. So these vessels, we should remember them always as the first seven ironclads built in the Western Hemisphere, and they were built, three of them in Mountain City, Illinois, where the Cairo was built, and four at Corundalette, so they were built on our Mississippi and Ohio river towns. So you can say that Illinois was instrumental in building the first ironclads in the Western Hemisphere. In fact, the number of employees from the Illinois Central Railroad worked on the Mountain City ironclads. These were some of the men who were paid $2 a day as a skilled <laughs> worker for a 10-hour day. Next slide, please. This is the device that sunk the Cairo to inaugurate mine and torpedo warfare. C is a five-gallon glass demijohn filled with black powder. F is the float to give it buoyancy. H is a grapnel that anchored it to the bottom of the yazoo. D is the copper wire attached to a friction primer and leading to a torpedo pit ashore. They could be detonated two ways, either by a pull or by an, impulse, by an electrical impulse from a galvanic cell. Next slide. Is, uh, this is how the Cairo would appear to the Confederates on the morning of the 12th day of December 1862 when she was sunk. We are at the Confederate positions at Drumgool's Bluff. You can see the smoke boiling up from where the Cairo would have been at the time she went down. Actually, the, the smoke you see is from Captain Beso's Derricks. Next slide. This is how the carol was embedded in the mud. Actually, the mud line was much higher than shown in this sketch. About the only part of the carol sticking above the bed of the river was the pilot house. So actually, what we're going to have to do, we're gonna to have to do an archeological dig Underwater, We won't be doing an archaeological dig where you can work up in fresh air. It will be done underwater, and it will be done in water in which there is zero visibility. Next slide. As I said, in 1960, we were ready for our first operations, directed toward bringing the boat up and arousing any support at all because up to this time we had aroused no local support. We now had the Civil War Centennial Commission had gone to Anderson and Tully Lumber Company. They'd agreed to let us use a barge with a derrick and an A-frame on it and a tug for several days. But before we could bring these objects up river, we would have to clear the mud out of the pilot house because the interior of the pilot house was filled with mud. So to clean the interior of the pilot house up, we would have to use jets of water. So we went to the Jackson Fire Department and borrowed a World War II surplus pumping unit, which you can see on the barge to the right. The divers will go down with these hoses, they'll start the engine, and they will use this jet of water to force the mud out of the interior of the pilot house. Once the mud has been Forced out the interior of the pilot house, we will then pass wires through the pilot house ports and cradle the pilot house and then try and lift it loose from the deck of the Cairo. We knew it would have to be spiked on since they did not have welding at the time of the Civil War. Uh, Next slide, please. There's our pumping unit. Notice the bank and how the bank is going to change as the operation expands. The bank is like a jungle. we were isolated. At this time, about the only feasible way to get to the site of the Cairo was by boat. Ken Parks is out in the small boat. He's our skin diver. Next slide, please. Here comes the Anderson and Tully equipment. We have the Tug Porterfield pushing the derrick barge upriver. It has a derrick on it and an A-frame on the front. We figured the derrick which had a 10,000-pound lift, would be all we would need to pull the pilot house loose. Fortunately, there was an A-frame on this derrick, which we didn't think we'd have to use at the time. For several days, as I said, Ken and Skeeter had been working inside the vessel, jetting away the mud from inside the pilot house. Then, working by feel, they'd pass these wires, inch cables, through the pilot house ports to cradle it. The barge came upriver, was was maneuvered into position over the pilot house, and we hooked onto it with the derrick. The derrick began tugging away, and the derrick just wasn't man enough. We broke a wire, then the next thing that happened, it blew a fuel injector, and the derrick had had it for the day. So then we had to maneuver the A-frame into position. The A-frame is capable of lifting 50 tons. The A-frame, we made the hookup with the A-frame, and it began taking up slack. It then began totting, and the barge began sinking lower and lower in the water. Soon there was only about two foot of clearance on the section of the barge near the A-frame. Then something gave loose and next picture. And then into view came an object that no living man had seen. It was the pilot house of the Cairo, weighed approximately 30 tons. You can see how it is slung. It's eight sided. Three of the sides have 19 inches of oak sheeted by two inches of armor the sides have 12 inches of oak sheeted by an inch and a half of armor next slide this is, gives you an idea of the construction of the pilot house the flaps were an afterthought they were added after the fort donelson fiasco they were added here when they went into battle they pulled down the flaps and the pilot steered the vessel by peering through that small aperture about the size of a half a dollar i've had some mississippi river pilots look at that and they said They'd have to uh, have a gun at them to make them run a boat, pilot a boat, steering through with, with having that little vision. Next slide. This let's let you see the construction of the pilot house. It's lapped armor. To the left, you can see a hole cut by a Confederate projectile. This was probably a six-pounder. It cut through the armor, and it grooved the wood backing underneath. You can see how the armor's put on. It's put on with spikes, and it's ship lapped. Next slide. We got a bonus on the day we went up to get the pilot house. While we were rigging and waiting for the barge to get into position, Skeeter had been down jetting on the port side of the vessel, and he came up and he said, I have a round object down there. It might be a cannon, and it might be a tree trunk. We studied our plans of the vessel and could see that there could be a gun in that position. It was dark by the time the pilot house came up, but it didn't make any difference to the divers because they work in total darkness anyway. So they turned on the lights up above. Skeeter went down and connected on to the muzzle of this piece. We then pulled her to the surface, and not only did we get the gun, but we got the wooden gun carriage, which are very scarce. since we've been operating on the Cairo, we now have more Civil War naval wooden gun carriages and one tank at Vicksburg than there is in the rest of the United States or the rest of the world put together. This gun itself is an eight-inch naval gun. It was charged with canister. Now, we have a lot of arguments that they used grape and canister on naval vessels in the Civil War. I can answer this unqualified. They did, because five of the guns were loaded with grape. Loaded with canister, three were loaded with solid projectiles. The guns, when they're brought up, have to be disarmed. This one was loaded with great with canister. The powder, when it dries out, will burn just about as fiercely as it would 102 years ago. Next slide. This is another picture of the gun. This gun weigh the gun barrel weighs 7,000 pounds. You can see the wooden carriage is in perfect shape. The coal is still in the carpenter's marks and numbers can still be are still legible on the gun. Next slide. This is the gun as we take it down to Vicksburg. This is in 1960 in April, in, in, uh, in September. A number of you folks, when you came down to Vicksburg in the spring of '61, saw the gun in the pilot house, and this is when you gave us our first real contribution. We had 50, we'd had nickel and dime contributions till the round table came down. And with their $500 contribution, they gave us a lot of enthusiasm and were able to tide us over and give us operating expenses till we could get some money, that we, some, uh, enough money to give us uh, a chance, a start. Next slide. Then in 1962, with the aid of the New England Maritime Museum headed by Jackson Jenks, we went up to the, uh, to the Cairo site and decided to do a survey and see what the structured, structural timbers of the Cairo were like. As I say, the Cairo was, by this time, it silted over again. And we had to use air hoses to clean the deck of the vessel and then to enter the craft and feel the structural timbers. They would, go, they could just go by feel. They would go down and feel these structural timbers, and they felt sound enough to uh, to warrant an attempt to raise the craft. So in 1963, in September, we went up and by a volunteer effort, tried to raise a carol. We used the 10,000 bucks I won on the television program, plus $20,000 given by a Jackson businessman. That gave us $30,000. We had a lot of amateurs. We had a lot of enthusiasm, but I'm afraid no know-how. Next slide. The first thing to do would be to pump the mud away from the vessel. We'd be doing an archeological excavation underwater because the mud would have to be removed before we could get at the craft. So we hired a gravel dredge with a 20 inch sucker to suck up the mud. The mud would then be deposited in this sluice, which we copied from the 49ers. It It would be run through the sluice so we could strain it for any artifacts and also deposit the spoil further downstream. Next slide. After we had pumped the mud from away from the craft, from the port, the starboard, the stern, the divers then entered the interior of the craft and using airlifts, which function on the same principle as your wife's vacuum cleaner, began cleaning out the interior of the gun deck. And as they did, we began encountering other guns. We'd removed one gun, as I said, in 1962. Then we began, we removed 12 guns and 12 carriages in 1963. And here we come up with a 32-pounder. Next slide. Here we come up with a 42-pounder rifle. Now, these 42-pounder rifles are too, uh, with, were too heavy to bring up with their carriages. The 42-pounder rifle weighs 8,600 pounds alone. With a carriage, it would weigh about 10,000 pounds, and this would be too much for our drag line to handle. As I like to say, we brought up everything from an 8,600-pound cannon to threaded needles. Next slide. We brought up a thirty pounder parrot. This came out of the stern, and the aperture in this area the gun port was too small to bring the carriage out too so, so we had to disconnect the tube from the carriage to bring it up. Next slide after we brought the piece up, they would have to be checked to be disarmed now don 't a number of times historians had the uh, we're confronted with some embarrassing situations. Now according to rules and regulations of the Navy in 1861, you did not plug a gun with a Topion when it was loaded. This Topion was a plug that went into the breech to the bore of the gun to keep out moisture. You can see what would happen if you had a loaded gun, especially with an explosive shell in, and some sailor came along half baked half asleep and pulled the lanyard. It would throw the shell into the topion. You would have a muzzle burst, break the gun, and liable to kill or wound some of the crew. So when we brought up this 30-pounder parrot and it had the topion in, I predicted there would be no shell in this piece. But it shows you how red in the face you can be when they don't pay any attention to rules and regulations. Because we pulled the topion, it shined a flashlight up there, and there you could see the bra- the bronze nose of an explosive projectile. Next slide, please. These are the guns. When they first come up, since uh, they were under mud, they were very clean. There was no rust on them. As soon as they're exposed to oxygen, they begin to rust quite rapidly. These guns are, are, some of the guns are stacked out in back of the Vicksburg Visitor Center. Next slide. Another another 42-pounder rifle coming up. These 42-pounder rifles were loaded with 87-pound projectiles. Next slide. Governor Barnett was very interested in the project. He was instrumental in getting us a $50,000 appropriation, which we used this year to bring the Cairo up. This is in 1963 during our operations. He and his wife were visiting the site of the Cairo and talking to Ken Parks, our chief skin diver. Next slide. Another gun coming up during our 1963 operations. Next slide. The gun. This gun has just been brought up, and the men are examining the firing mechanism and remo- removing the percussion cap. Next slide. Walter Cronkite twice ran the Carroll story on his news show. Frank Blair has used it once. This is the day that one of the days that Walter Cronkite's cameramen were there photographing us, bringing up and disarming a cannon. Next slide. We have set this uh, in our two year operation, we recovered well over a thousand bottles. These are some of the bottles out of the sick bag. The uh, 127 tag is a iodine you remove the stopper the iodine will smoke still has a distinctive odor of iodine the jar in the foreground contains blue mass which was as the doctors know was a treatment for syphilis the bottle to the left is Dr. Fourche's liniment The yellow bottle is sulfur. The bottle to the right of the sulfur is linseed oil. The bottle to the left of the sulfur is potassium chloride, a rather common prescription by doctors during the Civil War, but I I think Dr. Burquist would turn all colors if he found out you were taking potassium chloride in large numbers now. Next slide. This is one of the boots. I will pass this around. Leather preserves very well under the water and the mud. The only thing that deteriorates in leather objects is the stitching. This is a boot. I'll pass it around. The leather is very soft and pliable, much better than a pair of shoes that I would keep in my closet all summer. Next slide. Uh, These are small arms and a boarding pike. I'm sure by the time of the Civil War, the boarding pike was principally used for pushing away blocks of wood that were floating alongside the Cairo and its sister boats. The small arms there was a flintlock, Harper's Ferry musket that had been converted to percussion. Evidently, the Ordnance Department didn't figure the Cairo sailors would be engaged in very close combat with the Confederates since they armed them with substandard weapons. Next slide. Next slide. We brought up a number of pistols. Most of the pistols are a .44 caliber army. Uh, when cleaned, they were all loaded when brought up. We cleaned them, removed the charges, removed the uh, charges from them, uh, replaced the main springs, and you can fire them again. Uh, the police commissioner will see the Civil War equivalent of, of handcuffs. These are leg irons. You went to the blacksmith, had them put on. You went back to the blacksmith to have them removed. Next slide. <laughs> These are some more of the bottle collection. Next slide. As I say, since then we've brought up uh, many, many bottles, but I have not got them developed. The most interesting to me is what is the oldest pepper sauce, I'm sure, in this country. We brought up a, bo- a champagne bottle. Uh, filled with uh, vinegar and red and green peppers. When the cork began to shrink, the fumes began to escape. I got some on my finger, uh, rubbed them under my nose, burnt myself for a couple of days because, boy, was it strong. We also brought up some wine bottles. One of the bottles of wine was still fairly uh, good in. Uh, some, some river water had leached in. We have kerosene. Most of the medical bottles we have this year were still being off for the doctors. are still off being, having tests run on them. Uh, Next slide. Removing a projectile from a cannon. Next slide. After the projectile is removed, it's necessary to wash out the gun to get the powder out because the powder, as soon as it dries, can be ignited. One of the Army men working with us had been working in the powder one day. He went home and forgot to wash his hands, lit his cigarette lighter that night, and ignited the powder on his hands and burned himself rather severely. When we washed out the magazine where we had hundreds and hundreds of pounds of powder, we had to be very careful to get it washed over the side immediately because uh, uh, if anyone had dropped a match in it as soon as it dried up, the whole vessel would have gone up. Next slide. Uh, it was like a Sunday's picnic on Sundays up at the Cairo. We had uh, anywhere from two to 6,000 people up there on Sunday. There ran excursion boats up there. Some of you can recognize the Kanawha in the background. Next slide. <coughs> This is the vessel's ice box. If you, the people up close can see what fine workmanship it is. It's a double ice, double ice box double box hand, hand worked was used by the officers to keep things cold. <coughs> Next slide. This is our diver in 1963 a crackerjack of a diver, but his ethics are not too good as Gill twist can. Tell. This is, uh, he was the best diver we've had, but uh, we had to get rid of him because he, his ethics is, I i won't say anything more about it. Next slide. <laughs> this is uh, with some of our collection. We have bottles on the back row. The object to my, uh, to, uh, uh, to your left, on the top row is a lamp. The object to my left, to your left, on the bottom row, the first object is a bedpan, which the doctors will be interested in, a Civil War bedpan. Then we have uh, brass covers that fit over the firing mechanisms of the guns. Uh, very few people, if anyone, have seen these firing mechanisms before. Smithsonian has none in their collection, only knows of them from photographs. We brought up about 12 different ordnance items the Smithsonian doubts if any living man has ever seen. Then we have uh, uh, sights, then the hammers off the cannons. Next. More bottles, a bottle of blue mass, bottle of wine. Next slide. One of the more interesting objects, of course, is the giant lamps they used to light the magazine areas. Of course, in the magazines and and in the shell rooms where they stored explosive shells, they could not have any light. So in the compartment next to them, they used these large standing lamps. Now these large standing lamps were encased in a lead box they were dropped down from the deck above. As you look in back of the lamp, behind the flue, you can see a brass reflector. The eye in front, ha, uh, we would insert a circular piece of glass of the same size, two inches thick, and this would be between the magazine and the lamp, both to keep the heat out. This, uh, the flue went up to carry the heat into the gun deck and also to keep the sparks out and to reflect light into the magazine. Next slide. One of the more interesting objects we brought up is a Vessel's Bell. It was founded by the Buckeye Bell Foundry in 1860, George Washington Coffin. It rings, it has a very beautiful tone. This is how it looked when we brought it up. This is how it looks today. Next slide. All we've done to this is use a buffer on it with water. No, uh, no poly, uh, it's just been polished manually with a buffer. It can be rung has a very beautiful tone. It shows you what you can do with the brass objects you're a joy to work with. You can shine them up, I'm sure, better than they would have been when Flag Officer Foote or Flag Officer Davis or uh, even Rear Admiral Porter. Of course, Rear Admiral Porter never saw the Cairo. But as his two other officers would have been, uh, the two other commanders of the Mississippi Squadron, I'm sure they shine much better than they would have been for their inspections. Next slide. Something we didn't know they had on these vessels, we figured the officers used slop jars. The enlisted men used commodes over the side. But in the officer's country they had this commode. They also had a shower rigged up in officer's country. This is the officer's commode. Next slide. We have another v- view of the officer's commode and it's uh, pipe that carried the water off. Next slide. This is all 13 guns lined up for inspection. Ranging in size from a 30 pounder parrot, which weighed 3,100, was the 3,100 3, weight gun, to the giant rifles weighing 8,600 pounds. Next slide. We have about five or six sets of bowl and pitchers. These bowl and pitchers were, are stoneware. They were made in England and supplied to the United States services by a New Albany, Indiana importer. Next slide. Plain lamps. These were used in enlisted men's quarters. The quarter, the the lamps used in officers' quarters are very, very beautiful. They have some very, very handsome shades. Unfortunately, we brought them all up this year, and I haven't had my slide developed yet of the of the lamps that came up out of officers' country. Next slide. This is how we were going to lift the Cairo in 1963 when the, when the amateurs were trying, were having, when we, when us amateurs were having our go at it. Our plan was to use two giant barges, 235 feet long by 40 feet wide. These barges would be positioned to the Cairo's port and starboard. They would then be sunk. Cables would be pulled onto the Cairo, and the barges would be pumped out and lift the vessel. Our divers, I said, who didn't have too good of ethics, use very light wire, one-inch, three-quarters-inch wire. To do this successfully, you would have to use three, three-and-a-half-inch wire or cable, because this light wire barely stretches and you don't get any lift at all. You can see how the bank has changed as the operation has grown. See the poor. I had some of my naturalist friends in the Park Service said, we, we were glad of what you're doing to bring up this vessel, but why, oh, why did you do that to that beautiful bank? Next slide. This is another picture of our operations. You can see the drag line which we were using to pull wires under the vessel in 1963. You can see the, the barges in position. Next slide. Well, in 1964, we had $50,000 appropriation estate and this time we'd seen the amateurs just didn't have it. So we decided to negotiate with a experienced salvage man. We were recommended to see Captain William J. Biesel of New Orleans. He's the biggest salvage man on the Gulf Coast. I'll show you how big he is. He's the one that cleaned up Texas City after the explosion. Well, Captain Biesel said he'd raise the Cairo for $40,000. If he didn't raise it, it wouldn't cost us a cent. So we told Captain Biesel to come on upriver. So he came upriver on the third day of August and commenced work. Now, Captain Bissell's system for raising the Cairo was to use derricks and winches. He wouldn't rely on the river at all. But first, he would have to dredge away the mud from in front of the vessel, because he would have to get an area in which he could drop his wires into position under the bow of the vessel, then use his derricks to pull the wire back under the vessel. Well, he came up here, and we used a drag line to dig a, a ditch around the bow in front of the vessel. It was quite ticklish because there's no visibility and the drag line would drop its bucket down in the water and the operator would have to do by feel. And he would have to grab as close to the vessel as he could without grabbing it. And to make matters more difficult we could buoy the vessel but to make matters more difficult there were large numbers of logs trapped under the vessel and you couldn't really tell when you were grabbing down there just because you hit something that felt like wood you wouldn't know whether you had the vessel or if you had a log. Next slide. And this is what happened. Back On the back end of this barge, you can see some of the logs he pulled up. He pulled up logs. Some logs were brought up. They were five feet across the butt. I believe Gil has seen those huge logs. I neglected to bring pictures of the size of some of the logs. This log is about two and a half feet in diameter. But you can see what happens other times. Not knowing what you're grabbing onto, we occasionally grabbed onto the carrow, and here we, in the front of this, toward the front of the, of the slide here, the barge, you can see a rolling chalk, which we had un- inadvertently grabbed onto. One log, 50 feet long, was brought up from under the vessel, and then when we examined this log, we could see the imprint of the vessel's bow into this log. You could see where the toe plate of the middle keel, which was sheeted in iron, you could see a brown outline on this log. This indicated this log had been in position when the vessel went down. Next slide. Here comes a big log up. You can see the size of that log. Captain Biso is in the white shirt with the white helmet. Diver Bon Giovanni is in the middle and Ken Parks is on the right. We're bringing up a log from under the bow of the vessel. Next slide. Meanwhile, we were working on the artifacts. Here we're giving the guns a bath in muriatic acid. This is to soak the rust and corrosion off the gun. Dip it in the acid, leave it in there about four hours, bring it out, paint it with a the rusticide, then paint with black paint. Something else we found out, we figured the guns, until we got, began operations on the Carroll, we figured the guns were painted black. But after we brought these guns up, you could see on them that they were painted black, but they also had white sighting stripes on them. So uh, when we when we restore the guns the guns to the original appearance, we will restore the white sighting stripes to them. Next slide. Here's the gun in the bath muriatic acid. You can see the rust and corrosion being soaked off. Next slide. Well, since 1963, the Yazoo carries a tremendous amount of silt, and in the in the in the year since operations were suspended, the vessel had silted in again, so we had to put a uh, dr- gravel dredge back into position and, and suck the mud up from around the craft. People up in the foreground can see where the bow of the carrier rests since we have it buoyed off. You can see those yellow floats uh, a little bit in front of the drag line bucket. Next slide. Another picture you can, of the drag line working under the bow of the vessel. The, uh, The dredge dredging around the starboard side. You can see the floats marking the bow out in front. Next slide. Another picture of them working around the craft, uncovering it so we can begin to put the wires under. Next slide. Up comes another log. Now we're getting almost ready to drop our first wire into position. Next slide. Biso drops his first wire. Now Bisso, instead of using 3 quarters and an inch wire, he uses two and, a half and 3 inch wire with a steel cable. Finally, Bonjavani, after we removed a large number of logs, Bonjavani, the diver, went down and by feel could feel the flat bottom of the vessel. We cleaned away all the mud in front of the vessel. Now we were ready to drop our first wire into position. So the, the Derek Boaz dropped the wire, 3 inch wire, into position. Front of the bow. Of course, the diver's down there. A huge three-inch wire. You cannot move. You know. So all he could do is guide it into position. Then, as soon as it's in position, this derrick will move across the river on the upstream side by a spring line or anchor line. The the uh, tug riptide, which we can see on the other side, which incidentally, be so rit- late raised out of 250 watt feet of water off the Gulf of Mexico, will take position on the downstream side from the hulk, and with the downstream side of the wire attached to a timber head. Then the two will begin seesawing the wire back into position under the craft. It's a very slow operation. One three-day period, the wire did not move a single inch, so it's a very slow operation. Beso began work on the third day of August, and he didn't leave the site until the 26th day of December. Next slide. These are some of our BSOs crew. Bon Giovanni, if any of you saw one of Cronkite's show the night before Christmas, Bon Giovanni was a diver that, that they were interviewing on it. To the left is Captain Lucas. He's the commander of the tug, which helped saw the wires under. And, and they del- on this operation, everybody has two jobs. When Bon Giovanni do- dove, he was his tender. Next slide. Well, we've now got the wires under the bow of the vessel. Now, you know if you've been out and tried to pick up a plank in the mud, if you try and pick up the plank its whole length at one time, it's, it's very difficult to pick up a tube of 4 if you try to lift it all up at one time. But if you're going to lift a plank that's embedded in mud, if you pick it up on one end, you can pry it up, and it comes up relatively easy. The same way with a Cairo. You would have to pick up one end first. So that was the reason he began under the bow. We now have two wires slipped under the bow of the vessel. They are back approximately 30 feet. Those red marks, the ones up close can see, mark when the lift began. We've now started lifting the the bow up out of the mud and peeling it loose from the bottom of the river. You can see the type of equipment he uses. He has, uh, he altogether was to use four derricks with a lifting capacity of an excess of 900 ton. Next slide. You, the people can get a much better view of his hookup. He has the bow suspended about eight feet off the bottom of the river. This is about the time Gill Twist was up there. You can see the red lines on the wire. This is when the lift began. So he's come up with the bow some eight to 10 feet. After he gets these, the bow peeled off the bank, he then begins throwing other wires under. Before he's through, he has seven, two and a half, Or three inch wires under the vessel. While he was sawing these wires under, one of the wires became entangled in a section of the casemate and a piece of the armor came up. Now, the textbooks, the contract, and all say the vessel is to be armored with two and a half inches of armor. Now, two and a half inches of armor, when you see it written in a book or on a document, isn't as impressive as when you see two and a half inches of armor brutally staring you in the face. And I, it was a really shocking. And Vizzo took one look at this two and a half inches of armor and says, I have to have more power. to this time, he only had three derricks on the scene, capable of lifting about 400 tons. And he says, I've got to have the Cairo, that's my big derrick. It's insured for 425 tons, but will actually lift 500 tons. But the hooker on the Cairo was, that when the Mississippi is high, you can't get the Cairo onto the Baton Rouge Bridge. When the Mississippi is low, he can't get the Cairo up the Yazoo River because it draws nine feet of water. But fortunately this time, Hurricane Hilda hit. It rained very heavily over the Yazoo watershed. It brought the Yazoo on a rise. Before the Mississippi came up, he was able to get the Cairo up the river and move it into position. Next slide. Now the Cairo is in position. That's the giant derrick to the right. That A-frame is 90 feet high, the boom is 165 feet in length. The carrel has now been slung, seven wires under it, and he's ready to pull her out of the hole in which she has rested for 102 years. Next slide. He's throwing another wire under for insurance. Next slide. This is the Derrick he uses for his work Derrick, the Derrick Boaz. Next slide. Well, we knew, Captain Beso knew, that even with an excess of 900-ton lifting capacity, he could never lift the Cairo as dead weight. He could handle her under the water, but he could not bring her completely out of the water. So, what we would have to do, he would pick the Caro out of the hole in which she had rested for 102 years, then use his derricks on spring lines to move the wreck. 70 to 100 feet up river, and then we would use this barge, 235 feet long by 40 feet wide, to sink in the hole out of which the carrow had been pulled. Then, as soon as this barge had been scuttled in the hole the carol was in, he would pick up the carrow again, then move her down river, and line her up on top of this barge, then pump the barge out, and we would have the vessel intact. Next slide. On the 17th day of May, of October, Biso was ready to make his first lift to bring the vessel out of the hole. At 10 o'clock in the morning, he was ready. The, he uses steam so they'd fired the, the fires under the boilers at 6 o'clock in the morning. And he began lifting. The way he lifts, he would begin at the stern, lift on the stern wires. And he would lift till the derricks' decks were awash. Then he would move forward with the next derrick and lift all he could with it. Of course, when he lifts with the derrick in front, some of the strain is taken off the rear derrick, and then he would work his way forward there. And then he would begin the same way, working from the stern to the front, and slowly but surely you could see the red lines on his wires creeping up as the vessel began working its way out of the bottom. Along about 11, along about 12 o'clock, Captain Beazell said, "Well, I'm going to knock off for an hour or so." He says, I advise all my good friends to go in and eat. Well, everybody that had been watching him or associated with it took him at his word and headed in to eat. Well, while we were eating, the vessel suddenly started feeling light. And I came back from dinner, and this is what I saw. The vessel had come to the surface. That's broken water. You can see the corner post of the starboard casemate post sticking out of the water. See the taut wires. This is the first time the caro had been thrust above the water in 102 years. Then, using his spring wires, he moved his derricks, which cradled the caro upriver 70 feet and set the caro back down on a shoal. The barge was brought down and scuttled in the hole out of which the caro had been pulled. By the 29th day of October, Biso was ready to try and place the caro on the barge. Next slide. He's fired up. Next slide. We had some bad luck at this time. One of the wires sliced into the stern, severed the two fan tails. This wire had not been placed far enough forward. Of course working in black water you can only guess approximately where the wires are. You can get the idea of the size of this rudder. It's uh, six feet high. The post is a foot in diameter. You can see the tiller Next slide. Well, on the 29th, he's ready. Soundings were made. We had 11 feet of water on the bow of the barge, 19 feet of water on the stern. We were in trouble because the car- the bow the bow of the carol was 16 feet from the keel to the top of the casemate. So you can see five feet of that part of the vessel will be out of water. The stern, where we had nine feet of water, excuse me, we had 19 feet of water, it was twenty-five feet from the keel to the top of the wheelhouse. So he's going to be exposing quite a bit of the vessel. So we began lifting. The spiders came into view, the paddle wheel spiders, then the casement came into view. First you could see one gun port, then two gun ports, then three gun ports, then the hurricane, then the spar deck, excuse me, then the focusal came into view. Soon the decks were coming awash. Soundings were made, showed we still had to go about a foot more with a cairo. Captain viso ordered more elevation. The derricks began hammering away, lifting the vessel. Suddenly there was a crash. The derricks rushed towards each other as the caro wires had sliced into the side of the craft. The craft then dropped back at a rakish angle at which we now see it. The vessel had been cut into. There was only one thing to do, was to cut the vessel into sections and bring her up. We would cut her into three pieces, the bow, the amidships, the stern. Next slide. This is the bow section. We are now lifting the bow section, moving it downstream, and depositing on the barge. Next slide. This is where the starboard casemate has pulled away from the knuckle and pulled inward. Of course, when there's a cut into the vessel, there's tremendous pressure inward. And you can see it's pulled away from the casemate and pulled inward. This is sheeted with railroad rail. This was an afterthought on the vessel. When the vessels came off the ways, they were armored on the bow. They were armored abreast of the engine rooms and fire rooms. Certain sections of the vessel were not armored, as these sections suffered at Fort Donaldson. So in the months, in June and July, they had added railroad rail to these sections of the vessel. J. Herring Spoon, he was a German boy, enlisted in the United States Navy. Here is a pair of scissors, came out of one of the sewing kits. Here is a uh, mess plate along to Sam W. Chandler. He ate mess number five. He was from Pekin, Illinois. You cut the boat apart, you simply put a seesaw motion on the wire, and it cuts just like a saw. It cuts very rapidly. You hardly know it's even cutting cut so uh, rapidly then seesaw motion were you able to get an inventory of what what's on board before you not a complete inventory i have a partial i have a par- i have an ordinance inventory but that's the only inventory i have an, an ordinance inventory <laughs> let's see how yeah